Thank you, Chris, for not just teaching us that song, but writing that song. Hopefully you noticed that that was an original song that, that Chris wrote a, a couple of years ago, and when we were praying about uh, a replacement for Blake and uh, looking around, and uh, God directed us to Chris, and that was one of the songs that he sent us to listen to. Uh, and I thought, wow, uh, this guy's deep in his theology and his desire to express, um, you know, his heart of worship uh, to the Lord. It's okay, it's just rain. We, I, think we, I think we know what that is, right? We're all familiar with the rain. So, but anyway, thank you. We are blessed. We're blessed to have Chris and his family here. And um, that just is a, a great, uh, I think, window into his heart. And uh, that's the kind of guy you want leading worship. Amen? Um, somebody who just loves the Lord and loves to worship Him and uh, is, is, has, a, has a deep knowledge of the Word of God and can put it into singable uh, prose. And uh, we so appreciate Chris, Chris's ministry. Well, take your Bibles and turn to, back to the book of Daniel. We're going to get back at it here after a, a quick break last week uh, to kick off our, our summer super study with the parable of the soils. But I want to look with you at uh, Daniel chapter 10. And uh, not to belabor the point, by the way, about this uh, church etiquette, the, the worship service etiquette. I was just thinking after I got done talking about that, I went to a movie this week with my wife and and uh, we've all gone to the movie theater, and you know, they, you realize they, they make a big deal about movie theater etiquette. I mean, it's like half the opening section is about what you do with your cell phone. It's like, do we really need, are we that dumb that we need you to tell us all those things? But it's really important, right, that, that you know, hey, do this with your cell phone, put this off. You guys are pretty good with your cell phones, by the way. I don't ever feel distracted by those. But I was just thinking of it, if, if, if the world's going to make such a big deal about etiquette in a movie theater to watch a movie, right? How much more should we uh, care about this in the church? And the whole point is, like, you hate it when, like, at least I do. I'm pretty particular in a movie. I want to sit. I, I, my, my kids laugh at me because I always have to find the place right in the middle, right? You have to sit in that thing. It has to be perfect eye level, right? All this kind of stuff. I'm, I'm just anal like that. But, I mean, doesn't it bother you, like, when you're sitting there and you're into this movie and all of a sudden these people either got to get up and go or they got to come in late, and they're like, excuse me, excuse me, pardon me, and, and, you're, and you're just like this, looking around them to see, you know, I mean, it's just like, that's rude, you know? What are you doing? And, and uh, so, again, there's just, there's just normal uh, transition points in a service, right? There's seams in the service. That's just the way a service is designed. So, again, for example... Um, this is how I think. If I need to move somewhere during the service, I'm going to look for a time in between songs, not during a song, because if you move during a song, right, people are worshiping, and all of a sudden they see somebody out of the corner of their eye, and that distracts them, right? Well, wait till that song ends, and during the intro to the next song, that's the time to move. Did you get it? Right? It's a natural. You're not going to distract somebody from much of anything during a transition between Scripture reading and prayer and the music or the music and the message, right? I mean, those are natural transition times to move. Other than that, you should just stay still and minimize the movement, right? Because movement is just distracting. And so, um, anyway, just was thinking about a movie. So, just want to share that with you. Um, well, let's look at Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. 
And let me just read this chapter, and it's an interesting chapter, and it, it may take you by surprise this morning because we're not going to be uh, delving into any deep, um, you know, mysterious vision of the future with goats and horns and all this kind of stuff. It's almost like an introduction or a preface to the vision that Daniel had that he's going to unpack for us in chapter 11. So this is kind of an introduction this morning, but there's uh, some great truth here that I think will encourage our hearts. Let's begin reading in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deadly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Verse 10, then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I've now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words." But, in the, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I, now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces, except Michael, your prince. Father, we confess that at first glance, 
there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of relevance to us today from this um, strange chapter um, that really just records this interaction that Daniel had with this angel. And yet, Father, I pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds to understand uh, the truth underlying this text that is very relevant for us today, very applicable, very transferable uh, to our lives and our situation even now. And so I pray you'd open up our minds to understand, to understand our hearts to hear. May the word uh, find good soil this morning and root itself deep in our hearts and grow up and produce much fruit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure most of you remember the popular television series that um, was uh, aired on CBS back in 1994 to 2003. It was called Touched by an Angel. That's right. Each episode usually revolved around a person who was at some kind of crossroad in their life. Uh, There was a big problem they were facing or a tough decision they needed to make, and, and an angel or angels would enter the scene, and they would bring a message directly from God, which helped the person with their problem or decision. Well, this morning... As we continue in our study of Daniel, we are going to see how the prophet Daniel was touched by an angel. He was, so as to speak, at a crossroads in his life, his ministry. He, he desperately needed an angel to help him figure out the dilemma that he was in regarding the future of his people. Uh, this wasn't the first time that Daniel was touched by an angel. Uh, if you remember back in chapter 8, uh, verse uh, 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man named Ben between the banks of Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Verse 18, now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. Seemed like Daniel kept falling asleep every time he saw an angel, right? Well, it was more like he passed out is what was going on there. Um, uh, Chapter 9, verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision, previously came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction. He talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. And so we've seen already Daniel interacting with angels um, ever since chapter 8. Now, you remember in in chapter 8, Daniel stopped writing this account uh, in Aramaic. He reverted back to writing in Hebrew. Why? Because the visions that were to come, uh, that were left in the book, were specifically related to the future of the nation of Israel rather than the Gentile nations. So the Gentiles... Visions regarding the Gentiles were from chapter 2 through chapter 7, and now chapter 8 on is all about uh, what's going to happen to the nation of Israel in the future. And so this morning, we're going to begin looking at the third and final vision that Daniel had 
which is recorded over the course of, the, of, of these last three chapters, chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. They really form a unit. And, and uh, originally, obviously, there was no chapter breaks, right? We put those in there to kind of help us uh, study the scriptures, but there was no chapter breaks originally. So you just got to think of, of, of chapters 10, 11, and 12 as one big unit. And chapter 10 is the, really the preface, as I mentioned already. It's really s- setting the scene, it's the setting, and then chapter 11 is the vision, and then in chapter 12 is kind of the postscript, uh, kind of the closing remarks. And so here in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel explains here how and when this vision came to him. And this vision was regarding the warfare that would take place between the nation of Israel and her neighbors until she finally was granted peace by the coming Prince of Peace the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in, in, in explaining all this in chapter 10, he gave us a, a firsthand glimpse into the spiritual warfare that is raging all around us. Because you see that here in this chapter. There was, a, there was spiritual warfare going on. And, and uh, while we're not told near as much as we would like about the, the spirit realm Uh, in the scriptures, we're we're given a few glimpses uh, into this unseen world uh, at various points in scripture. For example, look at at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, a familiar passage of scripture to most believers. This is the the classic text on the armor of God and how important it is that we we wear this armor on a daily basis. Why? Well, in, in, in Ephesians 6, verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of who? Of the devil. Now, notice verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You say, what in the world is that talking about? Well, Paul was giving us a sobering glimpse into the spirit realm. And basically what he does there uh, in in verse 12 is he paraded the opposing spiritual army by us to intimidate us. To say, hey, there's a war going on and you better not be running around in a t-shirt and shorts. Okay, you need to put your armor on. This is a serious deal. And, and some of us have seen the pictures, I'm sure, of, of um, you know, Russia, for example, back in the Cold War era, uh, and they would parade their military through Red Square, right? And, and, and the soldiers would come through and they'd be doing this thing, and, right? And it's like everybody's going through and there's these massive armies and then they bring their tanks through and then they bring their, their, their warheads through and their missiles through on these big carriers, right? And what are they doing? They're showing off their military. They're parading their military to, to, to intimidate their enemy. And, and, and so, in, in a sense, that's what Paul is doing here. And, and he, he tells us here that there are a myriad of angels that God created to accomplish his purposes. This is what he's talking about, the spiritual forces, the, the, these rulers, these powers uh, in the heavenly places. Okay, He's talking about the angelic realm. And so we know from Scripture that 
that um, God created a myriad, thousands upon thousands uh, of angels to accomplish his purposes. Now, we also know that shortly after creation, one of the, the leading angels or the leading angel named Lucifer or Satan as we know him today, rebelled against God and a third of the angels followed him in his mutiny and they were all cast out of heaven. We, we've already looked at that in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, but l- listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 12. And we have a, I think, a historical account here of the fall of Satan. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then you can jump back to verse 4, and it says, His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And that's where theologians come up with the fact that a third of the angels were cast down with Satan in his rebellion. A third of the angels in heaven followed uh, Satan uh, in his rebellion against the Lord. Now, what did Satan do once they all got kicked out of heaven? Well, According to Paul here in Ephesians chapter 6, Satan has arranged these fallen angels, also known as demons, into a highly sophisticated, well-organized army with differing degrees of authority and responsibilities and ranks. And, and, and Satan has them strategically networked throughout the world to oppose the work of God. It's kind of like a spiritual mafia. They're, they're there. You may not see them, right? But they're there. And that's how Satan is able to make it appear that he's just like God. What do we know to be true about God? God is what? Omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at the same time. Uh, he's all-powerful. He, he can do anything he wants at any time, right? Well, is, is Satan omniscient? No. Is Satan omnipresent? No. Is Satan omnipotent? Absolutely not. He's none of these things. But it, it appears that he is all these things. Why? Because of this network of forces that he is, that he is uh, mustered and organized um, to oppose the work of the Lord. And it's as if he's omnipresent. It's as if he's omniscient because they're networked together. And so Paul's saying our, our real struggle, and this is a hand-to-hand combat is what he's talking about, is not with flesh and blood. It's not with other human beings. It's not with godless philosophers or, 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 or atheistic uh, college professors or evil dictators or liberal politicians or the gay lesbian movement or abortion advocates or cultists. That's not, that's not a real battle as Christians. The real battle is being fought where? In the heavenlies against spiritual forces. We are constantly surrounded by them even though we can't see them. Turn to 2 Kings for a second. 2 Kings chapter 6. I love this story of Elijah being attacked by the king of Aram. This is 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8 and the king of Aram did not like Elisha at all. He was messing up all of his plans. Notice it says, now the king of Aram was, 
warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. So this is Elisha tipping off the king of Israel. Hey, don't go there, because that's where the Arameans are going to be. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, who keeps uh, giving away this secret information? This is highly uh, confidential intel, and it seems just to keep getting out. Do we have a mole amongst us or what? He says, no, one of his servants said, no, my Lord, O king. But Elijah, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. It's like whatever you say in private, in secret, he knows. Somehow he knows. Well, why? Because he was a prophet. And so he said, go and see where he is that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, behold, he is in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So they sent an entire army to capture one prophet. Verse 15, now when the attendant of the man of God, this is, again, talking about Elisha here, his attendant had risen early and gone out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city, and his servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? So you imagine the servant, he's just, you know, coming out of the tent and he's just kind of rubbing his eyes, sleep out of his eyes and he's oh, stretching. He, uh, Elijah, <laughs> we got a problem, right? You better come out and take a look at this. And so he says, hey, we're, we're, we're surrounded uh, by all these guys. Um, there's way more than them, than, than us. And Elijah prayed and said, Oh, no, verse 16. So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The servant's like, dude, what are you talking about? (laughs) It's two against an army. And then notice what he prays. He says, then Elijah prayed and said, oh, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That just kind of gives you goosebumps, doesn't it? I mean, that was the spirit realm that Elijah knew was there to protect them and the servant just couldn't see. And so he prayed that, that, he would, that God would give him a glimpse into the spirit world. The truth of the matter is we are fighting an invisible war with an invisible foe, and we're wearing invisible armor. (laughs) That's why they call it spiritual warfare. Now, let's go back to Daniel. You say, what in the world does that have anything to do with the book of Daniel? Well, what we see here in Daniel chapter 10 is an Old Testament version of spiritual warfare. And you say, well, what, what, was the, what was the war over? Well, one commentator, I think, says it very well. He says, the occasion for the spiritual warfare was the restoration of the believing remnant of Israel to the Holy Land and their survival there as a commonwealth of the faithful living in obedience to Holy Scripture, knowing that such a development could lead to the ultimate appearance of the Son of God as the Messiah for God's redeemed, Satan and all his hosts were determined to thwart the renewal of Israel and the deliverance of her people from destruction. In other words, at every point 
Satan has sought to derail the plan of redemption. And so Satan knows what God's doing. And so he knew that if Israel was restored to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the walls, they rebuilt the temple, right, then it would be ready for the coming of God's son, the Messiah, who would redeem uh, God's chosen people. And that was the last thing Satan wanted to have happen. And so there was a war going on, and, and, and that's what's described here uh, in, in chapter 10. Now, I've just divided this chapter into four sections. We're going to see the sorrowing prophet, the shimmering visitor, the shattering message, and the strengthening touch. Let's look first of all at the sorrowing prophet uh, in, in verse 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. So this particular vision occurred in the third year of Cyrus's reign as the king of Persia, around 535, 534 B.C. And, and again, remember... Based on what we learned in chapter 9, in the white space there between chapter 9, verse 27, and chapter 10, verse 1, something historic had taken place in the nation of Israel. What was it? What was Daniel praying about in in, in chapter 9? He was reading Jeremiah, having his quiet time, and he saw that the captivity was only going to be what? 70 years. And so the time was almost up, and so he began to pray. And so according to the prophecy of Jeremiah and an answer to Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, Cyrus had given permission for all the Jews to return to their land and rebuild the temple. Let me read for you this this decree in Ezra chapter 1. Verse 1, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, quote, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. He was taking that on himself. God's appointed me to build a house for him. And so I'm going to send his people back to do it. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And so Israel's captivity was over. Jerusalem was being repopulated. The temple was being rebuilt. All sounds good, right? But their trouble wasn't over. And the vision that Daniel was about to receive would would shatter any hope that he may have had that Israel would, from now on, enjoy her newfound freedom and she would have peace until, until Jesus came. Well, that's not at all what this vision was about. It was one of great conflict. You see that in chapter 10, verse 1. It was a, it was a vision of great conflict. And, and already, after clearing the temple area and laying the foundation of the temple, Israel's enemies were harassing them and trying to sabotage their plans to rebuild the temple. We see that in Ezra chapter 4. And so consequently, they, they stopped working on the temple for 15 years until Haggai, the prophet, came to, to admonish them and instruct them uh, to resume the work. Hey, guys, you know, you, you left the temple half-built, and you're off, you know, putting wood paneling in your houses, and, 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 and yet the, the, the house of the Lord is in disrepair. Get back to work. And so, obviously, this 
this conflict was, was grievous news to Daniel, that, that, they, that this, this um, rebuilding work had been halted uh, or hindered and then, and then eventually halted. Uh, but what may have grieved him the most, even more than that, is that, the Jewish, that the, most of the Jewish people had not returned to their homeland. Out of the hundreds of thousands of, of Jews who were in exile uh, in, in Persia at the time, or who had been taken from Jerusalem uh, to Babylon, and now again Persia had taken over Babylon, only about 42,000 people had returned to Jerusalem. And the rest of the them chose to stay behind in Persia. Why? Because they were comfortable there. They'd become enmeshed in the pagan society. In fact, that's why some don't have high regard for Esther and Mordecai, even though they're presented, you know, I think with high regard in the scriptures, because they were the compromisers. They were the ones that stayed behind in Persia. They didn't go to rebuild the temple. And so some would question their loyalty uh, to God and to, to his plan. Although we know in God's providence, that's exactly where he wanted them to be. The point is that, that from Daniel's perspective, few seemed to care about the promised land. They, they, see, they didn't seem to care about rebuilding Jerusalem. They didn't care about restoring the temple. They weren't anticipating the Messiah the way they, they should have. And so Daniel's desire was for all of these things, and he wanted everyone to go back. And you say, well, why, why didn't he go back? Well, he may have stayed behind to motivate the rest of them to shake off their, their sinful complacency and, and, and get back to their homeland, or maybe he was just too old to travel. He was probably close to 90 by now. But all that caused Daniel to mourn and to fast and to pray for three weeks. Notice in verse 2, In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat it or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. And so here Daniel was pleading with God, fasting and praying, um, really for more details, more answers regarding Israel's future. And his consuming desire was to intercede for his people and really to get the assurance from God that the nation would survive and carry on with honor and, and faithfulness, this holy mission as God's witness in the world. One commentator put it this way, he wanted to be certain, Daniel wanted to be certain that the remnant of 42,000 that had already gone back to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel and Joshua and had reinstituted public worship at the side of the temple would not fail in their sacred trust and that the commonwealth they had established would carry on till the last days and the coming of the Messiah, the Son of Man. And so he was so passionate about this that he, he fasted. He abstained from eating meat and wine uh, in, in order to give himself more passionately to prayer, he, he ate only what he needed to survive here. He also uh, neglected putting, you know, fragrant oil on his hair and his body, which was a natural thing to do, and living in a dry, arid, uh, desert climate like they, they were living in, but he, he denied himself those things. And, and yet, despite this prolonged period of intense prayer, he received no response from the Lord. The heavens were like brass, as it said, right? You feel like you're praying, and, and it's just like bouncing off heaven. You might be able to identify this, right? There's maybe something that you've been really burdened by, something you've been really passionate about, and, and you've fasted, you've prayed for weeks, months, maybe even years. You've pounded on heaven's door about some issue, some problem, some struggle, some temptation, some sin, some relationship 
challenge. And all you've gotten is silence from the other side. Well, there's a couple stories that Jesus told. You might want to just write them down. Uh, Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 10. Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 10. And Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Let me just read the first one. Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 10. And this is just Jesus teaching on prayer. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 11, verse 5. Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I, I say to you, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and him who knocks, it will be opened. The other story, Luke 18, is about uh, the, the persistent widow going before the, the, the judge to get uh, her case settled Another great story about persevering prayer. But the point is, persevering prayer, the thing is, the point is to hang in there. Hang in there. Don't lose heart. Don't quit. Persevere in prayer. That's the point of those parables. And so we see here in these first three verses this, this, um, this sorrowing prophet. Daniel was sad. Now, let's next see the shimmering visitor. The shimmering visitor. So God sends... This prophet Daniel, a visitor, verse 3, um, or excuse me, verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold and uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and, I, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. So after three weeks of fasting and praying, Daniel gets this visitor from heaven. He was standing by the Tigris River when he had this vision of this majestic man who had a bright, dazzling appearance. Now, Bible scholars pretty much split right down the middle on who this man was. Some believe this was another theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the second member of the Trinity, uh, the angel of the Lord, the same angel that we saw in the fiery furnace, right? The angel of the Lord. Um, the main reason for concluding this is, is, is the description that Daniel gives here. It really closely resembles the, the description that, that, the, uh, that John gave of his vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1 when he was on the island of Patmos. It looks like the same guy. Uh, furthermore, Daniel's response to the vision is typical of others who saw the Lord. Um, when Isaiah, Isaiah saw the Lord, he was undone. He felt like he was going to disintegrate, right? Uh, Peter fell on his face and said, depart from me, I'm a wicked man. John passed out uh, in, in Revelation chapter 1. Here's, we're going to see Daniel passing out, as it, as it were. Also, the fact that Daniel's companions felt the presence of this man but didn't see him reminds me of when Saul's Companions heard the voice of the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus but couldn't make out the words. This is Acts chapter 9. 
So a lot of good reasons why you could take this as the, the, as the angel of the Lord. This is, a, this, is a, this is Jesus Christ. But uh, I believe it's better to understand this visitor to be the angel Gabriel. Why? Well, context. Context is king, right? And, and who has Daniel been interacting with since chapter 8? Gabriel. That's who he's been uh, talking with and who's been giving him uh, uh, insight and understanding into these visions. Uh, he's already been sent to bring him a message on two previous occasions, chapter 8 and uh, chapter 9. And he also addressed him this, in the same exact way as we're going to see in just a moment. He, he talks about him who is highly esteemed. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's how he referred to him back in Daniel chapter 9. And you say, well, that's a pretty in-depth description for just an angel. <laughs> it's pretty detailed. In fact, that may be the most detailed description of an angel in Scripture. Well, I would just say it's consistent with how angels are described elsewhere in Scripture. You look at Luke chapter 24, uh, when the women went to the tomb and they saw the angels and what was the noticeable thing about them? They were really bright, really shiny. Um, Acts chapter 110, same thing. Uh, when the angels came, when Jesus, after Jesus returned to heaven, uh, they were shining. Uh, Dwight Pentecost makes this comment. He says, angels who dwell in the presence of God, who is light, are themselves clothed with light. And Daniel saw something of heaven's glory reflected in this one who visited him. And I would also just add this, that I think the most natural way to read this entire chapter is that, that it's talking about one individual. It's not like he saw Jesus Christ and then another angel showed up and, and okay, who is it now? It's just one person he's interacting with. Because sometimes you read it's like, well, is that a second person? Is that another person? No, it's just one person. And I think it's also very improbable that Jesus Christ could or would be hindered by a demon who would need the assistance of the archangel Michael. And that's what we're going to see here in just a moment. So notice verse 7, Now I, Daniel, saw, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. So everyone else took off. Daniel was left there, overwhelmed with fear, and his face turned pale, his strength just, just, he was completely drained, and I think he just fainted, he lost consciousness here, and the angel had to revive him. And again, if, if someone as saintly as Daniel would faint in the presence of an angel, someone who walked with the Lord that long... Listen, he, he was, he, even he wasn't prepared to handle the awe of coming face to face with heaven's glory. That's a quote from Chuck Swindoll. I love that. Even Daniel wasn't prepared to handle the awe of coming face to face with heaven's glory. I heard a pastor tell a story one time about uh, another pastor who claimed that Jesus would come and visit with him while he was shaving in the morning. And so here's the pastor shaving, and, and Jesus would just show up in the bathroom. 
and have a conversation with this guy while he was shaving. And so my pastor friend said, did you keep shaving? I mean, that was, the, are you, are you, you really think I'm going to believe you that Jesus shows up in your bathroom while you're shaving and you're just kind of having a conversation with Jesus in your bathroom? I don't think so. I mean, this is an angel and Daniel passes out. And so we've got this shimmering messenger or visitor. Now let's look at the shattering message. The shattering message, verse 10. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem. There it is. Same way he addressed him in chapter 9. Understand the words I'm about to tell you and stand upright for I've now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Again, I love this way that Daniel is referred to as a man of high esteem. Literally, he was precious in the sight of God. It says it again down in verse 19. He said, O man of high esteem. I can't think of anything I would rather hear God say about me that, O man of high esteem. Don't you want that to be how you're regarded by God in heaven? You're one of high esteem. Question is, what makes a person of high esteem in God's eyes? What, what does he find precious? What is precious in God's eyes? Well, we know that the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the earth to find those whose heart is what? Completely his. Totally sold out. And I think that was Daniel's heart. What made him especially precious to God was his complete absorption in the will and glory of the Lord to whom he had yielded his heart. He, was, he had a whole soul devotion to God. By the way, ladies, it says in 1 Peter chapter 3 that a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God. That makes you highly esteemed in God's eyes when you have a gentle and quiet spirit. Isaiah 66, 2 says, To this one I will look who is humble and contrite of heart and who what? trembles at my word. That makes you highly esteemed by God. So the angel raises Daniel to his knees so he could receive this revelation that he'd come to deliver in answer to his prayers for greater insight into the future of Israel. And notice he goes on to explain why the answer to Daniel's prayers had been delayed. And this is where it gets fascinating here. He said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come to response to your words. Okay, well, why did you take so long? If you heard, I mean, it wasn't like God wasn't listening. He was listening to you. From the very moment you opened your lips and began setting your heart on it, he was been listening, and now I'm coming in response. But, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. That's about three weeks. Same exact amount of time that Daniel was praying and fasting before the answer came. So his entire time, he was being withheld, if you will, by the king. Gabriel was being withheld by the kingdom of, uh, prince of the kingdom of Persia. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the king of Persia. Now, I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Again, just reminding us, there's a little road, road marker, if you will, road sign to remind us, okay, we're still talking about the future of Israel here. 
So again, what's going on here? Well, this prince of Persia, whoever he is, blocked Gabriel's way for three weeks to bring this answer to Daniel. So the question is, who is the prince of Persia? Well, since Michael, the archangel, was called into the fray, it must have been, he must have been some kind of evil angelic power, more powerful than just a human prince. This is not talking about a human prince, I don't believe. I think it's talking about an angelic prince or a demonic prince. And we know that Michael is the chief angel whose primary role is to serve as the protector of Israel. We see that in chapter 10, verse 21. That there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So if there's a, if there's a prince of Persia, if there's a, a, a demon uh, who is there to whatever, empower Persia, protect Persia from uh, Satan's side of things, then Michael is your guy. Michael is your angel. Michael is the one who's, who's, who's been assigned to protect Israel. Chapter 12, verse 1, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. So see, now, now Michael's being called a prince, small p, and he's the guardian of the nation of Israel. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, we already read that. It was Michael who was leading the battle against Satan in, in the heavenlies before Satan was cast out of heaven. And so the prince of Persia was most likely a satanic representative assigned to the nation of Persia. And again, this gives us some insight into the nature of spiritual warfare that, that, that is fought in the heavenlies between, between angels and demons. And, and Satan apparently assigns special demons to influence certain governments and leaders to oppose God's people and God's program here on earth. And, and, and God has allowed them to have limited power to oppose his work for the time being. You look at the book of, uh, the book of Job, and, and Satan, or God gave Satan limited power over Job's life. Remember that? He said, you can do all that stuff, but just don't kill him, right? He limited his power, but he did delegate, if you will. He gave him freedom to, to work his evil ways. And so when we pray, we need to realize that, that the reason why our prayers may not be answered as quickly as we would like, there, there, there are supernatural forces at work which we know nothing of other than what we read in Scripture. Who, who knows what's going on in the spirit realm? Now, having said that, I think we need to keep in mind that we are never instructed in Scripture to engage these demonic forces in some kind of spiritual warfare praying as if, as if who wins the war in the heavenlies is based on our prayers. The reason I say that is because there's lots of opportunities that you could just go online or you could go to some churches and there's, there's, there's spiritual warfare seminars. And, and they'll teach you how to, how, how, to, uh, how to do what they call warfare praying. And uh, there's also you know, exorcism rallies. If, if you have someone that you think is demon-possessed or you think you're demon-possessed, you go to these rallies and, and, and they'll, they'll exercise that demon out of you. It's crazy stuff in the realm of, uh, of you know, in spiritual warfare. Some of this came, I think, because of some popular books that came out some years ago. You might remember Frank Peretti's book, This Present Darkness. 
Uh, Piercing the Darkness was the other uh, book he wrote, and, and, and it was really just a fictional account of how territory demons control a small town and how the Christians overcame them through prayer. And uh, unfortunately, many Christians accepted Peretti's fiction as fact, as theology. This is sound theology. And so they assumed this was a true portrayal of how demons work and how, how to wage spiritual warfare. And consequently, they, they've adopted this as their view of the spirit world. And so a growing number of Christian leaders are organizing citywide prayer meetings to break down the strongholds of evil spirits who are allegedly controlling that particular city. And mission agencies are devising strategies to, to confront the demonic forces in particular countries and uh, who hold entire nations in bondage to unbelief and sin and It's like, okay, we see something like that possibly happening here in Daniel chapter 10, but to create a whole theology out of it, I don't think is is wise. We're never given instruction. This is simply narrative. And that's important to understand. It's just narrative. It's just telling us what's, what's happening, what's going on. It's not telling us to do necessarily anything about it. It's not giving us instruction. It's not prescriptive, if you will. And it's comforting, I think, to know that God has mighty angels like Michael to defend his people against demonic attack. And I think we can take a lesson from Michael, the archangel, in Jude chapter, or Jude verse 9, it says, Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, and like, what is that? I don't even want to get into that, okay? He did not, not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And I say that because there's churches and there's organizations that would teach you how to engage demons, how to, how to, how to uh, fight against uh, demonic activity by addressing them directly and rebuking them. I rebuke you, Satan. I rebuke you, this. And, and, and it, Michael, this is the archangel Michael, didn't even rail against the devil. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And this is just, again, a good reminder here that the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. That's what it says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 47, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15. The battle belongs to the Lord. And so it's his battle, not ours. Well, let's quickly just look at the final few verses here, the strengthening touch. The strengthening touch, verse 18 Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Sounds very much like God's words to Joshua, right? In Joshua chapter 1. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia, since I'm going forth and behold the prince of Greece. Well, here's another potential demonic force somehow connected to Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. In other words, I'm about to tell you uh, and give you an answer to your prayer. Um, But in the meantime, let me just strengthen you. So Daniel was completely debilitated by this angelic vision, and so the angel quietly, Gabriel 
uh, quieted this, this alarmed prophet and strengthened him physically and emotionally, and he encouraged him not to be afraid, and he, he promises to reveal things which would happen to Daniel's people uh, in the future, which he is about to do in chapter 11, chapter 12. We'll see that next week. Um, he's about to tell him God's plans for Israel under Persia and under Greece, and then during the tribulation under the Antichrist at the end of chapter 11, and finally in the millennium in, in, in Daniel chapter 12. But again, what's happening here? Well, I think this is reminiscent of when the angels ministered to the Lord after the temptation in the garden. After 40 days of, of wandering in the wilderness and being tempted by Satan, it says the angels came and ministered to him. Same thing in Luke chapter 22, they, they came and ministered to, 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 to Jesus after that agonizing prayer uh, in the garden of Gethsemane. Hebrews chapter 1 talks about the role of angels. What is their role uh, that they are uh, intended to minister to us. It says, are they not all ministering spirits, Hebrews 1.14, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So we could start a whole new message about guardian angels and what, 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 what is the angel's role in our lives as Christians today? Well, it says that they're ministering spirits, that they're sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. If you're a Christian, if you're saved, God oftentimes in the spirit realm is ministering to us angelically and we might not even realize how that's happening. So what are we to do? Be peeking behind bushes and under the bed for angels and demons? No, we need to stick with what we are commanded to do and back to where we started, Ephesians chapter 6 what, is, what, are, what are the weapons of our warfare? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Know the Word. Read the Word. Study the Word. Apply the Word. Obey the Word. Verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. It's all about the word and prayer. I mean, we, we know that. We, we, we got that stuff, right? We got, we got a Bible. We can actually see that. And we know how to pray. And that's really what we need to focus on. I love that account in Matthew chapter 17. We don't have time to read it. Where the disciples were trying to cast out the demon from that young boy. And remember, they were frustrated. They couldn't do it. And they said, Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And, and what, did, what did Jesus say? This kind comes out only through what? Fasting and prayer, prayer and fasting. And so there are just some, there are just some things in life that are never going to get resolved any other way than through prayer and fasting. I think the, the great hymn that Martin Luther wrote captures really the essence of spiritual warfare. He wrote that famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it goes like this, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. Talking about the devil. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. 
Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age, age to age, age the same and he must win the battle. Listen, Jesus wins. Amen? Jesus wins. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this great reminder that while we can't see into the spirit realm, uh, all of that is really invisible to us, and, and uh, all we can see is what's going on in the, in the world and what's going on in the nightly news, and, and, and it can be very scary just to, to watch all that is happening. And yet, Lord, this is a good reminder that there's so much more going on behind the scenes that we'll never know. And that ultimately you're in charge of everything and you're, you're all powerful. And you're controlling all of these things for your purposes. To fulfill your plan, which we know ends with you reigning over this entire earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so I pray that you would give us that hope today as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen.